that we walk by faith and not by sight. Uh, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we are God's workmanship or project that we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has before ordained that we should walk in them. In Colossians, Paul said, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And what we've been called into in this salvation is not a religion or, or an ideal or a set of beliefs or doctrine, but we've been called into a life that the Bible calls a walk. And so as we live our lives day by day and the sun rises and sets uh, and we're in Christ, we're walking with him. And the Bible says that as we have received him, that in the same way we're to walk in him. So how did we receive him? We received him by faith. We heard the message of his existence. Um, we felt the conviction of his spirit in our hearts testifying to us that he was real. That conviction is coupled with our observation, the fact that we could look out into a world that came from somewhere. Um, it was coupled with our experience of life, the things that we've thought about, and the things that we've observed and seen and heard in others throughout the years. And that conviction coupled with our observation, mixed with the message that we heard, produced faith, and we believed. And that belief resulted in salvation. And so we were saved by faith. We're saved by grace through faith. And so as we have received him by faith, so now we're also to walk with him by faith. And it's faith because we can't see the things tangibly. We don't phys physically touch it. I can't show you God. I can't show you God's plan for your life and what he called you for and called us for. And I can't, I can't paint a picture of it for you. I can describe what he's done in my life and I can point to what he's done in the past and I could say this is what he does and this is how you get there. And then it's up to us to walk by faith. And so where we are in David's life as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 5 is that he's now the king. And he's 15 years into this, this journey, into this walk that he's had with God. And he's gone from being a shepherd in a low-class family that was nobody in Israel, this no-named poor little boy, the, the youngest of seven or eight brothers, and now he's the king. And you take the 15 years that it's taken him to get here, and you say, how in the world did that happen? <laughs> you know, how did this young man become this king? And and that's I, I just want to read these verses. We're only going to look at the first. Um, we're only going to look at the first. Uh, five verses of chapter 2, and then we're going to go to Psalm 37, and, but I want to look at, at, at David's destination here as he comes to it in chapter 5. And we're, we are going to, I know I'm skip, I skipped about a chapter and a half 
Um, next week we'll probably talk about some of the things that happened in that as we continue on with David's future. But if we if we just forge onward here, um, now that David's the king, and we don't stop for a minute and just look back and and ask the question like how did this happen? We're gonna miss something, you know. So we're gonna just look at these five verses. Then we'll turn to Psalm 37, and David's gonna answer that question: How this happened? How does how does it happen? Uh, so look at verse one. It says, "Then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron." And so fifteen years has passed since Samuel first came to David's house and dumped a horn of oil on his head and said, "God's got a plan for your life." 15 years, and 15 years later, it says, Now all the tribes come to David in Hebron, and they spoke, saying, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Also, in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were he that led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall feed my people Israel, and you shall be captain over Israel. And so what we have coming to pass now in David's life is we have the um, the intersection of purpose and time. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1, it says that there's a time for every purpose under heaven. And purpose is obviously, um, you know, purpose. It's what we do. It's, it's the event. And time is, is when that purpose comes to pass. And, and the two things for David for 15 years have been moving independently, and it's this moment right here when purpose and time come together. And, um, and David's been waiting for this. So Israel's prepared, David's prepared, and they say, you were the one that, that, that was doing the work of the king even before you were the king. And God spoke saying that you're going to be the king, and so, verse 3, all the elders of Israel came to the king, to Hebron, and King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Do you notice there that it calls David the king before he was anointed the king? That, that it says that they came to the king. In other words, the king was already formed and forged in David before the opportunity came for him to sit upon the throne. God had already made David a king before he was a king. But now he's anointed to be king. And it's always the way it is. God always prepares us and finishes his preparation for what we're to do and be before that opportunity ever comes or before that place of, of ministry or that place of life or, or effectiveness or purpose, whatever that purpose is that he has for us, he always prepares us for it before we get there. And when we get there, the, the, the title is catching up with what's already here, what God's already forged and brought on the inside. And so David, verse 4, was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, reigned he 33 years over all Israel 
and Judah. And so David comes to the end of this 15-year-long journey now, uh, and he's finally wearing the crown. Purpose and time have come together. Now, the first half of those 15 years he spent in the frying pan. And we know we've been through it. We don't have to rehash it or recap it, but it was a hellish seven and a half years David was running for his life. And then the second seven and a half or eight years of that, he spent reigning over one tribe. He was the king over Judah, just the one family of his own. Um, but he was still waiting for the fullness of the plan to come together for the last seven and a half years. So David had a journey. And at the beginning of the journey, when Samuel first came, when David was probably just 17 years old or 16 years old, maybe even 15 years old, um, all he had on, on that day was um, a, a, a calling, that God had a calling on his life. God had put something in, in David's path that this is for you, David. This is what I've given for you. I created you for this work. That calling existed in David on the day that Samuel dumped the oil on his head. There was a calling, and then there was a desire. David also had a desire in himself to fulfill that calling and that purpose. And we don't know whether or not David knew that he would, would be king on that day or, or if it was something that, that he discovered along the way. Sam, it doesn't tell us whether or not Samuel even told him what it was. But there was a calling and there was a desire, and that's all there was on that day. And then it took 15 years for, for it to come to pass uh, and to be fulfilled what God had called him uh, to be. Now, just think about the unlikelihood of the shepherd from Bethlehem becoming the king of the nation, becoming the king of Israel. And, and when we ask the question, how does that happen?, in retrospect, we can see it because we just look at the testimony of the scripture and it's laid out for us. And, and it's very clear. And everything in hindsight is always 2020, isn't it? Like when you look back at how something happened. I always tell people that the, 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 um, the windshield is foggy, but the rearview mirror is crystal clear. And that's just true in life. You know, we're trying to see forward and see how things are going to happen or see the road in front of us. And sometimes it's like, oh, oh am I even on the road? You know, and, and it's crazy. But when we look in the rearview mirror, it's just like we can see the lines, the lanes. We see all the other headlights. We're like, oh, yeah, that's how I got here. Then we took a left and a right. And, yeah, that was so easy. And then we look back, oh, you know, and, and into the forward again. And, and for David, 15 years was the windshield. We look in the rearview mirror and we say, well, that's easy, David. Sure, of course Saul's going to throw a spear at you. And then, of course, you're going to go to Gath and, and have to act like you're a, a maniac and, and spit on your beard to escape for your life. And, of course, you're going to live in a cave for seven years and wonder if you're going to get a meal or live. Of course. But he didn't know any of that. And so if, if you were to sit down with David and, and you're considering your own life now, because every one of us has a purpose, if you're here this morning and you're in Christ Jesus, then God has a purpose for you. There's an honor and, and something, a substance. There's a seed inside every single one of us that uh, is, has a flower in it and a fruit in it that, that is unique to you. It's, it's yours. It's from God. And, you know, many of us, we're looking in the, in the windshield and we're saying, well, how in the world is this calling and this desire ever going to bear out and come to pass? And if you and I had the opportunity to sit down with David one-on-one -on -one and say, David, you started as a shepherd, 
you ended up as the king. How did that happen? Can you, can you, can you tell us, how can I go from where I am right now to where God has designed me for? How do I get there? And David says, you know what, I, I actually wrote that down. <laughs> I can answer that question for you. And the answer is in Psalm chapter 37. So leave Samuel, turn to Psalm chapter 37, and David would begin his David would begin his his answer to us to that question by saying, I have no clue <laughs> how how that happened for me. Um, I in my best most wildest dreams I could not have have begun to even forecast the first day of how I was going to get where I got from where I began and I don't know how you're going to get there either but I can tell this I can tell you I can tell you with absolute certainty that if you will do these things then I can guarantee you that you will end up where you're supposed to be there is no fail to this. And so what does he say, uh, beginning in verse 1? We're not going to look at every verse of this psalm, but we will look at the, the highlights here. He says in verse 1, he says, fret not thyself. And that's a phrase that he's going to use three times in this psalm. And what it literally means is do not become unsettled. So do not become unsettled. In other words, when you think about something that's settled, um, you know, we, we have a, a well at our house. And, um, you know, when we first moved in, they had shocked it and did all this stuff because it had been dormant for so long and they stirred it up. They, they unsettled it. And for like the first three months of living there, we had to change the whole house filter like four times. Because the, the well was so unsettled, the filter would just clog up the whole entire encasement would just be filled with this iron sediment, you know, whatever. And then it settled down. Now we have to change it like every six months. I know you're supposed to do it more frequently than that, but you know how it is. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but two years ago, we had to change the well pump. And when we pulled everything out and put the new well pump down and then, you know, primed the line, you have to shake, shake it up and down, we unsettled the well again. And so for a couple of months, we had to clear the filter for, you know, every couple of weeks or whatever it was until the thing settled again. And, and, and every single one of us, you know, we have this heart and it's filled with life, you know, and it's filled with all kinds of things. And we can become unsettled. You know, things can get shaken up and we could start to, our emotions can get stirred up. And, you know, the things that cloud the water and cloud our vision and cloud our mind, they can get stirred up within us. And that happens. It happens to every one of us. And what David says is, is that that might happen. You know, you're going you're, you're gonna to get unsettled because unsettling things happen in this life. But if you're going to get unsettled, don't let it be unsettled for this reason. He says, fret not yourself because of evildoers neither be envious against the workers of iniquity. And what David is, is essentially saying to us right here, first part of his answer to our question, David, how did you get where you were going from where you were? As he would say to us, don't put your eyes on anybody else. Don't look at anybody else. Don't look at their course. Don't look at what they have. Don't look at where they've come from or where they're going. Don't look at, at how good their life is or how good their life appears to be. Do not look across the room at another living soul and compare yourself to them. Neither be envious against the workers of iniquity. Don't be jealous of anyone else. 
Now, for David, the reason that he uses these words about the evildoers and, the, and against the workers of iniquity is because the counterpart of his calling was King Saul. There was only one other king. I mean, he would, David's plan, God's plan for David's life was that he was going to be king. There can only be one king at a time. You know, so David didn't have very many places to compare himself to to, 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 to to see what it looked like. But every day of David's journey that that he knew what he was headed for, the only person that he could compare himself with was Saul. And Saul was an evil man <laughs> and Saul was a worker of iniquity. And for 15 years of David's life, he would look across the room and he would see what he was going to be someday. And he would see what Saul was, what Saul had, what Saul got to do, and the way that Saul did it. And David would would envy. He would become unsettled because he would see, well, this guy has all this. He's got all this money, and he's got all this fame, and he's got all this authority, and he's got the world at his fingertips, and he can have 3,000 men come and chase me instead of doing what they're supposed to do. And look at the way that he behaves himself. And if he gets what and, 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 and it unsettled him. And at the end of the whole journey, when David could see the whole thing in perspective, he could look at that and he could say, that was a total waste of time. Every single minute that I looked at him and the way that he was and what he did and what he got to do, I was wasting my time. And he would look at us and he would say this. He'd say, listen, no matter where it is that you're headed, no matter what God has for your life, don't look at another human being and compare yourself to them. Don't say, well, God, I do this and they do that and they get to do this and I'm better than them. And that's just, it's a total waste of time. God has put honor in front of every single one of us. There is a plan. There is a fruitful purpose. Jesus said, this is my father's will that you bear lasting fruit and that your fruit would remain. God has that for every one of us. Don't look at anyone else. And compare yourself with them. Whether it be for good or for bad, you're better, you're worse, they have, you don't, don't do it. Keep your eyes on him and understand that he has a plan for you. And that's it. That's all you have to consider. Everything else is going to produce unsettling in you. You're just going to lose your peace. And David says that's a waste of time. It's not worth it. Don't let it happen. Then he begins the promises, conditional promises. There's eight or nine of them that he gives to us here. He says in verse 2, um, concerning those people, he says, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and they'll wither like the green herb. Actually, one more thing on, on um, this uh, envious uh, thing before we move on. The, the Bible says that the glory of man is like the flower of the field. It says that twice, two or three times actually in the Bible. That today it's here and it's beautiful and it's you know attractive but then tomorrow it's gone. It's shriveled up in the place where it was. You can't even find it anymore. And any time that we waste time being envious of someone else or comparing ourselves with someone else, it's a waste of time because that person that we're envying or comparing ourselves with is not going to be who they are or what they are in a very short distance into the future. And, and so it's just a waste of time. It's total waste. Now the promises, verse 3. He says now, trust in the Lord and do good so shall you dwell in the land, and verily you shall be fed. And so the first promise, and all these promises are conditional promises. They're promises that are framed with a condition. 
And so the first promise that he's given is, or giving to us is he's saying, listen, here's a promise from God for you. He says that you will, number one, dwell in the land and you will be fed. Now, the land, when, it, when the Bible talks about dwelling in the land, and specifically the land of Israel that David is, is talking about here poetically, the land is the promised land, isn't it? Remember, God promised that land. And anytime they talk about the land, they're talking about the promised land, or the land, the territory that God promised to them. And so for you and I, the land that he's speaking of here isn't the land of Israel, the borders, or even like the borders of our country or where we live, but he's talking about the promise that God has for you. So when it says that he has before promised or planned good works that we should walk in them, that's the promise of God for our life. And so the promise that he's given to us here is that you're going to dwell in that land, that promise, and you're going to be fed, meaning that you're going to be provided for, you're going to be sustained, you're going to be kept while you're in that land, okay? Now, the condition that's attached to the keeping of that promise is that we're to trust in the Lord, he says in verse 3. And the word trust there means to place the full weight of my confidence in him. That's what it means to trust. So the full weight of my confidence that he is going to establish and finish what he began is in him. I'm not placing any of the trust of that on myself at all or on my ability to forecast, or on my ability to navigate, or on my ability to make clear clarity of what's in the windshield. I'm not trusting in that. I'm not trusting in the wipers. I'm not trusting in the lines in the road. I'm not trusting in the traffic cop, the person that's pointing the direction. I'm trusting completely in the fact that God made a promise that he has a plan for my life and that he's going to bring it to pass. And that's it, that he's going to bring it to pass. It's not on me, it's on him. And if I will place the full weight of my trust in him, David says, no matter where you are in your 15 years, or your 20 years, or your two years, whatever it is that it takes, wherever you are, God's going to get you there. It's going to happen. So that's the first thing that David, the first promise that David gives to us. He tells us, don't be envious and looking at anybody else. And number two, listen, you're going to get there. If you keep your trust in God and put the full weight of your confidence in him, he's going to make sure that you get there. Understand that and know that no matter where you are in it right now. But your confidence and your trust must be in him. The second promise that he gives to us that's also framed in condition is in verse four. He says, delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So the second promise here is that God is going to give us the desires of our heart. Now, that has two meanings to it. When, when you talk about God giving someone the desires of their heart, the first meaning of that is that God is going to give you the actual desire Meaning that the things that you want, the things that you desire, those desires were actually planted there by God. At some point along the way, God gave David the desire to be the king. 
Now, we don't know if he desired that when Samuel first showed up, that David was out in the field with his sling going, die, Philistines, you know, and he was pretending to be the king. We don't know if that's the desire, but at some point, David, that desire was birthed in him. It was a God-given desire to be in that position. And the desires that we have in our life for the noble, honorable things, the dreams that God has placed there, those desires were planted there by him. That's the first meaning of, of that God will give you the desires of your heart. The second meaning of it is that he will fulfill that desire. Is that the God-given desires that we have will also be fulfilled by him. Now, what's the condition? The condition is that we're to delight ourselves in the Lord. And what it means to delight ourselves in the Lord, meaning is that the thing that gives us pleasure or the thing that we want for our lives is what he wants for our lives or for for him himself to be a part of our lives or to be in our lives with it. That he's our delight. Remember when Jesus was in that with the woman at the well and the disciples brought food? They hadn't had food and they brought food and they said, Master, eat something. You haven't eaten in a while. And Jesus looked at them and he said, I have food that you don't have a clue about. He said, my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. I find more satisfaction in, in doing my Father's will than in any meal or any experience or anything that you could you could give to me or do for me. And and anyone who's tasted that knows exactly what it means. You you can say, yeah, you know, when when I that the the times I've been the most satisfied in my life are the times when I feel like God is using me and I'm right in the center of His will. There's nothing greater than that. And and so when that's the delight of our heart that I want to be in His will, I want what He has for me. I want to know that I'm pleasing to him. That's my delight. Then that's when God's going to both plant desires and fulfill them in you. And David says, that's a promise. You can, you can be sure of that, that if you keep your heart in a place where what you want for your life is what God wants for your life, then God is going to fulfill the desires that have been placed in your heart. They're going to come to pass. He's going to succeed. The uh, third promise that he gives to us in verse 5, also with condition, he says this. He says, commit your way unto the Lord. Trust also in him. That's the second time he uses the word trust. And it says that he shall bring it to pass. And I love, I love that, that he says it this way. He says that he shall bring it to pass. Bring what to pass? Remember, this is your personal interview with David, isn't it? You're sitting with just him. And, and the thing that God has placed before you, the thing that God has given to you, the future that God has placed for you, that's the it in this verse. And so whatever it is that God is going to do or, or that he, he's going to fulfill in your life, he's going to fulfill it. And what's, the, um, what's the, uh, the condition? He says, commit your way unto the Lord with trust. So what does it mean to commit your way unto the Lord? Listen, it is... Listen carefully. I'm going to tell you something you already know. <laughs> but, but listen. It is universally true, 100% of the time, that you cannot figure out how God is going to get you there. There is no exception. There is never a time when a person can look back and say, I knew it from the beginning that this was how God was going to do it. There has never been a person that has said, oh, I can see it perfectly. I'm going to go here, and in two years I'm going to be here, and in five years I'll be here, and in ten years, done. Not one ever. 
There's not one. You and I cannot figure out or forecast how God is going to bring to bear his plan upon our lives. It's impossible. There's too many twists and turns. There's too many things that he has to teach us along the way that we don't know what they are and how he's going to do that. There's too many variables. Our vanishing point is too close to the front of our face for us to be able to see what's around the next bend. I remember learning in earth science in ninth grade that uh, that uh, man um, on uh, level ground um, has a vanishing point uh, at the maximum under the perfect condition of four miles. Meaning that because of the curvature of the earth, if you were standing on completely level ground on a perfectly clear day and you had 20-20 vision, the furthest you could possibly see an object is four miles before the curvature of the earth makes it impossible for you to see beyond that. Now the earth has a circumference of 24,000 miles. And you and I at best can see four under perfect conditions. That's a pretty short vanishing point, isn't it? <laughs> God alone can see what's coming. And so when you ask the question, well, how am I going to get from where I am to where I'm trying to get? The answer is commit your way unto the Lord and then trust him. That's the answer. I love the unnamed servant in Genesis chapter 24. He was sent on an impossible mission. And when the mission was fulfilled and he was asked the question, how did this happen? His answer was, I being in the way the Lord led me. I being in the way the Lord led me in the path. And that's how God's going to do it. He did it for David that way. And that's how he's going to do it for us. How are we going to get where we're going? Listen, commit your path. Lord, you have my days. I give you every one of them. I give you my purpose, where I'm going to be in the future. God, I give you the fruit that you have ordained that I bear for you. I give you what I'm going to look like when I get there. I give you every trial and lesson I have to learn along the way. I give you every trial, every difficulty, every difficult person, every conflict, every relationship. I give you all of it, Lord. Do your will and bring me there. I trust you for it. That's the position of my life. That's part one. Part two, it says, and trust him. Trust him means you stay there. Meaning that when you can't see or when there's an unexpected bend, you don't say, you know what, this is stupid. I'm getting old. And I can't see this thing ever ending. You know, you stay in there. Remember the second time, the second time David's right-hand man, I think it was Abishai, said, David, let me kill Saul. This is the second chance. Let's kill him. This is it. And David said, nope. David said he might die of natural causes or he might die in the battle or some other thing might happen, but I will not interject my hand upon this process. That's committing your way unto the Lord, not taking it into my own hands. Trust also in him. Next promise, fourth promise given to us in verse six. He says, and he, and this is actually the condition is, is attached to the last verse. It says that he also will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. The fourth promise, and it's connected to the committing your way condition, is that he's going to bring forth your righteousness and your judgment or your justice. Now, consider this. 
David was maligned and falsely accused of being a traitor, right? Of being a usurper, of being an insurgent, of being a spy, of being wicked. He was accused, he was told, you know, was told to everyone that he was worthy of death for how many years? And, and all the while, David was innocent of all of those things, yet he was being maligned and slandered. And so David would say to you and I here, he's going to say, listen, along the way, you're going to encounter a lot of enemies. And there's going to be a lot of people that are going to slander you. There's going to be people trying to beat you back. There's going to be people that say wicked things about you. All of that's going to happen. But listen, if you just commit your way unto the Lord and trust in him, at some point, your integrity is going to come forward and everybody's going to know. Everybody's going to know that all those things that were spoken against you were false. And they're going to know why they were said, and they're going to be seen in perfect light. And your righteousness and your judgment is going to come forth like the noonday sun. It's going to be crystal clear. So don't worry about it. Don't worry about the, the malignings. Don't worry about the insults, the railings. Don't worry about it. You keep going. Commit your way to him, trust in him, and he's going to bring forth your righteousness and your justice. Then in verse 7, he says, "Now in, and now he's just going to give a series of uh, commands in verses 7 and 8. He says, rest in the Lord. That means settle. Rest. Don't be anxious. That's the opposite. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. That's the first of three times he's going to tell us to wait and patient. We don't like that, right? <laughs> Wait. David says it took 15 years for things to happen. That's a long time. You know, especially when you're in the frying pan for seven and a half of it and, you know, and then in limbo for the, the, the second seven and a half while God's just preparing things outwardly. You know, you're done. You're ready, but he's still preparing the, the, the stage, you know. Wait and wait patiently. Don't give up. For him, fret not yourself. Don't become unsettled because of him who prospers in his way. One of the things that we see is we see people all around us starting to, to spring up, right? Their ship comes in. They get rich. They, the plan for their life comes forward. You know, their kids get a full scholarship. You know, and all these things happen. And we're sitting here going like, oh, when's my turn? God, God, did you forget me? And David says, don't let what happens in other people's lives make you unsettled. Because of the man who brings wicked devices to pass. For David, that would be Saul. And then he says in verse 8, cease from anger and forsake wrath. In other words, when things happen that are setbacks or frustration or whatever, don't let it get, it get into your emotions. Just keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on the Lord and don't get angry. Don't let your temper flare up. Don't get mad at God because, oh God, this isn't fair. You know, now, you know, I did this and now you're letting this happen. Don't do that, David says. Just keep your confidence in him. And now the third time, fret not yourself. In other words, don't become unsettled in any wise to do evil. In other words, don't let your heart become unsettled to the point where you just say, well, I'm, I'm just going to give up. I'm going to sin. I'm, I'm, I've been, God, I've been holy. I've been keeping myself from my vices. And that's it. I'm, I'm going out and I'm getting bombed tonight. I, I just, the pressure is too much. I just, I, I, I'm hitting the release valve. Or you know what? I've kept my eyes pure, but I'm not anymore. You know, like the, for what? It's just a waste. Seven years I've been following you, Lord. And for what? I've made no progress. 
I'm right where I was. David says, don't do that. You're becoming unsettled because you're looking at outward things. Remember, we walk by faith and not by sight. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. It's a journey. He's going to bring it to pass. Don't do evil. And then he talks in verse 9 all the way down uh, to verse 22 about what's going to happen to the wicked person. And the only verses I want you to see is if you look down at verse 16. He says this, David. He says, a little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked or many wicked people. For the arms of the wicked. Now, what are the arms? The arms are that which supports in this context. In other words, the arms that hold up the wicked. And in this context, the arms that hold up the wicked are their riches. Because David just said that the little that the righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. And so the riches are the support structure that hold up the ungodly people. And isn't that so often what we covet after? Like we wish we had more money or we wish we had you know, more financial security or financial stability. And David says, listen, listen, guys. He says, the arms of the wicked shall be broken. In other words, they're not going to be able to stand on that foundation. The thing that they're trusting in, the wealth of them, isn't going to last. It's not going to hold them up or bring them into life. It's going to be broken. But notice the structure of the righteous. He says, but the Lord upholds the righteous. David could say, he could look at us and he would say, for 15 years, I didn't know where my next meal was going to come from. I was living in a cave. I had to fight tooth and nail for everything I, I had. And I wished I longed for the days when I sat at the table in the palace and they brought a whole duck you know, right in front of me. And I longed for those days. He says, but now that I've come to the end of this, what I've come to realize is that I was in a more secure place when God was bringing me food at the hand of my men in a cave than I was when I was in the palace eating the best on a silver spoon. Because now, where is Saul who had all that at his, he's dead. And where am I? He says, they, I'm sorry, the Lord, verse 18, knows the days of the upright and their inheritance shall be forever. Would you rather have something that's temporary, that looks good and feels good for a moment? Or would you rather be in the place that's secure and steadfast forever? That's what David is basically saying. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine, they shall be satisfied. He goes on and he gives more promises. If you look down at verse 23, he says, The steps of a good man, and, and you'll notice that the word good is italicized. Um, it's not there in the original language. It was added for clarity, but it's basically the context is the steps of God's man, the steps of one who's called by him. It says, his steps are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. David would say in another psalm, when he was just thanking God, he said, you have enlarged my steps under me. And that's a, it's a cool picture, if you just think about it for a minute. You ever, when you were younger, or even now sometimes, you go hiking, and you cross like a, a, a stream, and you've crossed it on rocks that are just up outcropping, you know, whatever, and sometimes they're mossy and you're not sure if it's slippery, but it's all there is. And, and, you, and that's kind of the picture is that you're walking in a slippery place, but as your foot comes down, it's almost like the, the place where your foot lands is enlarged under you. And that's what David's saying. He said, my steps have been ordered by the Lord. Every single one of them, 
um, and he's delighted in my way. Though he fall, he will not be cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. He says, I have been young, and now I'm old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging for bread. David would look at us, and he would say, listen, you know, I've, I've done this thing now. I've walked the whole thing. I've never seen God fail to keep his promise in a single life, not ever. So he goes on, and you can read the rest of the uh, the rest of the psalm there as he goes on, and he just gives more. In verse 18, there's another promise about the inheritance being forever. In verse 19, uh, he says that we won't be ashamed, that we'll be satisfied in famine. Um, in verses 23 to 25, he says that he'll order our steps, and then he concludes the matter, um, you know, at the end of the psalm. But but basically, if you were to take all of the the things that the, the pieces of advice that David gives to us in this psalm in terms of seeing God's plan brought through in our lives, you would just hear these words. Trust, rest, wait patiently, do good, be upright, keep your eyes off men and on God, love his word and love his ways. That, that would be David's answer to the question, David, how do I get where it is that God is, is going to break? And if you wanted to simplify it even more, David's answer would come down to two words. He would say, trust and obey. Trust and obey. That's the answer. How do I discover and see? How did David go from the shepherd pen to the palace? He trusted God and he obeyed. Was he perfect? No. Did he make mistakes? Yes. Did he fall? Yes. Were there flaws in his life? Yes. Was there glass in the clay? Yes. <laughs> he, he was a flawed man, all of his flaws. But what did he trusted and he obeyed? He hung in there and he saw God's plan come to pass in his life. Turn to Proverbs 5. You're in Psalms, just uh, forward one book. And we close. The book of Proverbs begins in the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, by telling us the purpose of the book. It says, to know wisdom. That's why the book of Proverbs is here, to teach us wisdom. And the first nine chapters of Proverbs, if you just read through them, there's, this, there's these two women that are, that are spoken of uh, constantly throughout. One of those women is wisdom. Solomon takes wisdom and he personifies it in the feminine. And he talks about how wisdom calls. She cries out in the streets. She utters her voice. She calls in to the stupid ones, the simple ones. Come in here and I will help you, you know. She, wisdom, Proverbs 8, has builded her house. She's hewn out her seven pillars, you know. So there's this woman wisdom for, for all these nine chapters. Then there's another woman that keeps coming up in these nine chapters. She's called the strange woman, the adulteress. And you can almost get confused as you read it, and you can think, why does he keep talking about adultery and, you know, in the middle of this? It, it, it kind of seems like it's premature or out of context. Listen, he's not talking in the first nine chapters about the adulteress or the seductress when he talks about this strange woman. He's talking about 
the contrast to wisdom. The contrast to wisdom is the world's wisdom. Okay? You have God's wisdom that he gives to us in his word, and then you have the world's wisdom, the conventional wisdom. God's wisdom is trust, rest, wait, patient, faith. (laughs) You know what I mean? His words, obedience, listen to what God says, put your confidence in him. The world's wisdom is pull yourself up from your bootstraps. The world's wisdom is the me I see, is the me I'll be. The world's wisdom, we all know it. It's Oprah. (laughs) You know, Dr. Phil, rich dad. You know, yeah, that, that's the, that's the strange woman. Okay. The, 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 the guidance counselor at the local high school that is paid to push you into a college education, you know, uh, for if maybe that is or isn't God's plan for your life, but that's what they do. Right. That's the editor of time magazine. You get the idea, the world's wisdom, strange woman. Notice, notice. Proverbs 5, my son, attend unto my wisdom and bow your ear to my understanding that you may regard discretion and that your lips may keep knowledge. For the lips of a strange woman, that's the world's wisdom, drop as a honeycomb and her mouth is smoother than oil. In other words, when you hear what she has to say, you think, man, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. When they interview Rich Dad about how he made his you know, millions, you go, wow, that makes sense. It's smoother than oil. But her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps take hold on hell. Lest you should ponder the path of life, her ways are movable that you cannot know them. In other words, yesterday's conventional wisdom doesn't apply today, does it? Well, you know, 10 years ago, people were making money by flipping houses. Don't try to do it now. You know, it changes. The ways are movable. It's constantly shifting. You can't even catch it. Hear me now, therefore, verse 7, O you children, and depart not from the words of my mouth. Remove your way far from her and come not near the door of her house. Why? Why should we listen to God's wisdom and not the world's wisdom? Here's why. Verse 9. Lest you give your honor unto others and your years unto the cruel. Now listen, listen, guys. Remember at the beginning of this um, Bible study this morning, I said God has placed honor in every one of our hearts. There's a seed and every one of us that will blossom into a flower and into fruit that is unique to us and it's God's it's God's gift to us for our life his purpose for us we can either enjoy that honor ourselves or we can spend the energy and let someone else reap the reward of it that's what he's saying here he's saying if you want to do things the world's way if, you, if you're going to live the world's way and follow the world's wisdom and do things for the world's honor, then what you're going to come to at the end of your life is you're going to realize that you've given your honor, the thing that God made exclusively for you, and you've done it to enrich somebody else. You've given your honor unto others, and you've given your years unto the cruel. 
lest, again in verse 10, strangers be filled with your wealth. In other words, God puts something in you to produce an abundant life for you and for your family and for, you know, for, the, for your sphere. But you could use that for someone else. You could give that honor to someone else. Strangers could be filled with your wealth and your labors be in the house of a stranger. You become a pawn to enrich somebody else. That's what this world system is designed to do. The world's not looking out for us. The world looks out for itself. That's it. And you mourn at the last when your flesh and your body are consumed and you say, how have I hated instruction and my heart despised reproof and I've not obeyed the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to them that instructed me. In other words, you come to the end of it all and you say, I missed it. I follow, I listened to the strange woman. I did things the world's way every day of my life. You say, well, what's the contrast of that? Colossians chapter 1 says this. It says that in Christ, in him, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Here's David's counsel to you and I in conclusion this morning. As we ask the question, when you say, David, how did you get where you were going from where you began? Trust in the Lord. Put the full weight of your confidence for your life and the outcomes of your life in him and him alone. Commit your way and your path completely to him, knowing that you cannot forecast or, or, or even begin to see how he's going to bring it to pass, and then leave it there. And keep your eyes off of other people. Don't look at what God's doing with them, what he's done for them, whether they be good or evil. Keep your eyes on him. And understand this, is that God has placed a cup of honor in every single one of us. And he knows how to fill it, and he will. And he'll be successful in doing it. If you keep your eyes on him and your feet in the way. We walk by faith and not by sight. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Amen? Amen.